right. Morning, Village Church. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be together this morning. We've been uh, going through uh, all sorts of prayers of the Bible. This summer we're in a series that is called Prayers of the Bible. And each week we're looking at a different passage and we get a chance to learn a lot about prayer. We get to learn most importantly about the character of God. And this morning we're going to be in Jonah, Jonah's prayer. It's a unique location for a prayer, uh, one that's probably unfamiliar to you, uh, unfamiliar to me. It's really one of the most terrifying, nightmare-fueling Bible stories that we have. And yet, many of you have read this to your children before bed and then just told them to close their eyes and go to sleep. We're terrible people, which this passage reminds us that we are terrible people. And so quick background for us, because we're going to really spend our time on the prayer. We're not going through all of Jonah this morning. Uh, This is around 800 BC. Jonah is a prophet. Uh, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh to tell them to repent and be saved. And Jonah doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want them to be saved. And he doesn't want anything to do with Nineveh and its people. And so he gets on a boat and he heads in the opposite direction. I got a map. Some of you guys like maps. And there's really three cities we're talking about here. You got Joppa, which today, uh, if you went to to see it, it's called Jaffa. It's really close to Tel Aviv. So really just talking about Israel. And then God wants him to go to Nineveh. If you want to go to Nineveh today, no problem. You just got to buy a plane ticket to Iraq. And so feel free if God calls you there. I'll just take out your phone. We'll pause. You book your ticket right now. But if not, uh, that's fine too. God was wanting him to go to Nineveh, and he went in the opposite direction. He bought a ticket on a boat to Tarshish, which would be Spain, a port city in Spain. And so that's our map for those of you who like maps. If you want to visit Nineveh today uh, on our maps, we call it Bakersfield. And so you can... uh, Just kidding. Always get somebody every Sunday. Uh... You can also travel by fish. That's not uh, guaranteed. But So rather than traveling that journey, Jonah chooses to go literally the opposite direction. And when we say that Jonah was running from God, I mean, he's truly running from God. I mean, this is really the edge of the known world at the time to get all the way to Spain. We know from Romans, this was Paul's goal was to get to Spain, all the way to Spain. The Bible says he was running from God. He gets on a boat. God sends a huge storm says the boat is going to be destroyed. They're all going to obviously perish. And so the men began to cry out to all their gods. And they say, well, Jonah, why don't you cry out to your God? And so then they cast lots because they superstitiously want to think like, well, maybe one of us is to blame. And of course, the lot falls on Jonah and he admits what he's done and he knows he's dead anyway. So I guess out of compassion for the rest of them, he says, well, you could throw me into the ocean and the storm will stop and you will all survive. How did he know that? How did he know you could just throw him into the ocean? Well, Jonah was a prophet. He wasn't a good prophet, but he was, he was a prophet. He's not a very obedient prophet. And I think that's like part of the job. I think that's part of the main prophet responsibilities. So we're going to get into this prayer. It's only nine verses short. We get to get deep into it. I'm excited for it. We'll go through this kind of really just one verse at a time. We'll jump into Jonah's prayer here. Look at the first two verses. Chapter two, verse one. It says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. 
So the first thing we know is Jonah's going to pray this great prayer, and he's going to be repentant, it seems, in these words. But by the end of the story, he goes right back to the same place in his heart. And so theologians will spend thousands of years debating whether or not this prayer was genuine or if he was just trying to get himself out of a fish, you know. Because once his feet are back on solid ground, he obeys God for a bit, but his heart was never truly right. And we're going to spend our time debating it this morning, but instead we're just going to look at the words of his prayer. And look again at verse 1. It says, he cried out to his distress out of the belly of Sheol. In the Hebrew, we could translate this as saying the, the place of the dead, or you could even just say the grave. He says, I'm in the grave right now. Does he really believe he's dead? Does he understand where he is? There's probably some clues, some smell-related clues. I think it's clear that he knows what's going on. I think he knows he's in the belly of a fish, but he feels the weight of this, and he calls it a tomb. And so we have this sort of strange place where Jonah feels that God has rescued him in a sense, and yet he's not been fully delivered, but he believes that God will fully deliver him out of the fish. Somehow he was in a situation that was so bad He's tossing in the open waves, and he's certainly going to drown. His situation was so bad that he's grateful to be swallowed by a fish. (laughs) And he already believes that God has answered his prayer. He says, I called out to the Lord, and he answered me. In my family, around the dinner table at night, we we do highs and lows. You share your high of the day and your low of the day. We don't have teenagers yet, so it's the best. Like the low of the day is like, oh, I stubbed my toe. You know, you're just like, oh, you precious little thing. Um, I looked at our taxes and I'm panicking, you know. (laughs) That's my low, but you don't get that. Keep buying things. Imagine Jonah like, my low point for the day was when I was tossing in the open ocean, certain death. And my high was when I was eaten, you know. That shows you how bad of a day he's having, right? He believes that he's experiencing a miracle from God in this very moment. It's the most terrifying moment of any of our lives, certainly. It's a very uncomfortable miracle. In verse 2, he says what? God heard Jonah. God answered Jonah. I don't think we could spend enough time reflecting on the reality that God hears our prayers, right? We We brush past these things in Scripture all the time, that we call out to God, and He hears us. And yet, that's an incredible thing. We take it for granted that God would listen to us. Of course, God would listen to me. i got a lot of good ideas about this world. I think I could fix a lot of things. We take it for granted that God listens when we call. That's a crazy thing to take for granted, right? It's 2023. You can't even call your bank and talk to a real person. And yet God hears our prayers. Maybe more importantly, God doesn't have to. He wasn't forced to. There's nobody making God listen to you. There's nothing in the universe to force God's hand, and yet he cares. And Jonah says he hears and he answers. And this is not a faithful man that's calling out to God, right? This is a man who has run from God, who has rejected God's commands. He's chosen disobedience. Last week, we got to look at a prayer of David in Psalm 51, Pastor Josh preaching through it, and consider the weight of sin and how terrible it got. Adultery that turns to lies and deceit and murder. And and David dug himself deeper and deeper, and from the outside looking in, I mean, just looked so obviously foolish. I mean, this guy is ruining his life. 
And now with Jonah, we see maybe an even more perfect picture of just how ridiculous and foolish our sin looks from God's perspective. The idea that you can get on a boat to escape God. The idea that you could run away from the commands of God. The idea that you could take control and slip under the radar of God. I think some of the the greatest moments of laughter in in our household have been uh, playing hide and seek with a toddler, right? Because they're terrible at it, right? You play hide and seek with a two-year-old and the two-year-old thinks they found a great hiding spot under a blanket and you can see like 80% of their body. And they're in there and they're just like giggling. I might never be found. Standing there, sometimes they'll find like a floor lamp, right? And you got a two-year-old body hiding behind a floor lamp with a two-inch diameter. And on both sides of the two-inch diameter, you see half of a, a grin. And in their little mind, just thinking, I am so sneaky. I am a genius. <laughs> and you play along and you say, where could she be? I can't find her anyway. I can't, we might never find her. And all of these things are ridiculous and they're laughable, right? And you're laughing in your head at the silliness of it, right? But when it becomes sin that we're talking about, when it's hiding from God, it's not laughable, it's serious. You see, the weight of all of the ridiculousness now becomes the weight of all of the foolishness. And so Village Church, if nothing else, I hope we can look at this passage and agree this morning. The sin in our lives looks just as foolish as the sin we have seen last week with King David and this morning with Jonah. From the outside looking in, we're running from a God who is everywhere. We're hiding from a God who sees everything. And we're trying to control a God who has all the power. And so we look foolish in our sin, right? And so as we continue, we just say whatever sin you may be trapped in right now, very, very clearly, that is a dead end. And so I hope you see this prayer of Jonah and I hope you believe that there's a way out for you as there is for him. Verse three, he says, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And so we see in Jonah's prayer that Jonah's been humbled to the point where he now looks back at all of these events that have taken place, and he attributes every action to God. Because if you read the story, this is what you find. You go back to chapter one, verse 12. It says, he said to them, Jonah, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So who decided for Jonah to be thrown into the sea? Chapter 1, verse 12, Jonah decided, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And yet he says, verse 3, you cast me into the sea. He says, God did. And so Jonah understands it was God in every step. And now Jonah's bobbing around somewhere in the Mediterranean, (laughs) And he sees God's sovereign purposes in all things. He says, you, God, you cast me into the sea. It was your waves. It was your billows that passed over me. He believes that the ocean waves are tools in the hands of God, used to direct me and discipline me and bring me back into submission 
wrote this down this, this week. There will be a day when we see that God was always and only good. But we have a chance to willingly submit to believing this is true right now. One day you're going to see that all things were tools in the hands of God. You don't have to wait for that day to just say, you know, I, I'm going to choose to believe it today, right? Everything in life will reach this point, maybe in this life or maybe in eternity, but we could believe it now. Martin Luther wrote some things on this in, regarding the story of Jonah. He said, Jonah does not say the waves and the billows of the sea went over me, but thy waves and thy billows. Because he felt in his conscience that the sea with its waves and billows was the servant of God and of his wrath to punish sin. So we look at scripture and we see God is the God of the galaxies. Yeah, I think we're good at saying that. We say God is the God of nations. I think we're good at saying that. We say God is the God of kings, but God is the God of every wave, every sparrow, every molecule. We see that, right? Look at verse four. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look, I shall again look upon your temple. You start to see the heart shifting and you start to see Jonah praying in ways that show that he desires God, not just comfort. His whole plan was based around his own comfort and his own desires. He was a man consumed by his flesh. He didn't want to share the gospel with the Ninevites. He didn't want to share God. He wouldn't call him to repentance because of his own pride. And now he's fixed on new things. He's not calling out for a warm meal or a, a, a pain-free solution. He just wants to be near God again. He says, I shall again look upon your holy temple. This is going to be true of us sometimes. We're going to cry out to God in a lot of hard days. But our hearts will also be tested when times are really good. Will we see a dependence on God? Will we see a desire to be in the presence of God? That's our aim as God's people, right? That ultimately, beyond all things, our desire is to be in the temple, in the presence of God. Look at verse 5. It says, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So this is when we start to get this really cool kind of foreshadowing of our ultimate salvation. Because what's going to happen is 800 years later, Jesus is going to come down to earth and the gospels record several times that, that Jesus mentions the story of Jonah. I pulled one of us, one of them in here for us from Matthew chapter 12. This is Jesus talking, um, starting in verse 38. It's going to say, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he, Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So we see Jesus declares 
when he's on earth, that, that the story of Jonah and the time that Jonah spent of three days and three nights in the belly of this fish is foreshadowing the time that Jesus would be in the tomb and the ultimate greater delivery for us. And then he goes on, verse 41, he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And so Jesus gives a second insight into how we should understand the story of Jonah. Jesus is a prophet like Jonah that, that he came to speak truth to us and and it says, even the most wicked people, the people of Nineveh, they listened to such a disaster of a prophet like Jonah when he told them to repent and be saved. How much more so will we be judged if we fail to listen to the words of Jesus, the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king, when he tells us to repent and believe and be saved? And so <laughs> the story of Jonah points like all things in our Bibles, to the Messiah. It brings our eyes to the cross. And Jonah's story without the rescue is all of our stories without Jesus. And we see this even more in the next verse. Look at verse 7. It says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. We see this idea of the temple and the story of Jonah is a man who needs to stop running from God and he needs to repent and be united to God. But Jonah doesn't know the story of Jesus. It's a few hundred years too early for him to know that. When Jonah speaks about the temple, he's speaking about a God that requires a blood sacrifice in order to enter his presence, in order to be forgiven in the temple. And even at this time, Jonah doesn't realize that every sacrifice of the Old Testament was pointing to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. And Jonah has no idea that one day the sacrifice would be paid once and for all by Jesus. And that now we can enter the presence of God not by endless blood sacrifices, but by a single final sacrifice. This is really good news, right? If you're not a Christian, this is the gospel. You can know that this sacrifice has been paid. We're all rebellious. We're all running from God. We're all filled with our own pride in some way. But God makes a way for us to be rescued. We turn back to him. Right? Then he finishes up. Look in verse 8. He says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He says, steadfast love flows through the true God, not through the idols of the world. He's saying, if you want to be let down, then pay your regards to idols. You could translate this, those who cling to their idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That's a lot of Bible translations will say. Those who cling to their idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. What does that mean? It means if you want the easiest path to disappointment, just put your trust in the things of this world. 
if you want to guarantee that at some point you're going to be left empty-handed in a moment of crisis, then you can just build your life on empty things. Tim Keller writes this about it. He says, it's only when you reach the very bottom, when everything falls apart, when all your schemes and resources are broken and exhausted, that you are finally open to learning how to completely depend on God. As is often said, you never realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You must lose your life to find your life, as Jesus says, right? So that's the end of Jonah's prayer. The end of the story, which is not part of our passage today, is we know Jonah obeys God. He's kind of grumpy about it. He disobeys, and his heart is all wrong. And I think what we see clearly in this is, I wrote this down, that when your idols inevitably fail you, you will be broken and humbled before the Lord. So why not just give up on them now, right? <laughs> kind of goes with the first question. This is an ine inevitable thing. The, the idols and the things that we chase and, and our attempts at running from God and running towards other things, these things will inevitably fail us. And so the sooner we see that, the sooner we turn from them, the better. Why not approach the, the mercy seat of God with humility and brokenness? Think about being a, a church kid growing up and hearing the story of Jonah most kids' Bible stories, they focus on the miracle that God has all this control over nature. And you know, you, you tell the kids, look at how the storms come in. It's like God controls the oceans. They, they know that Jonah was running from God. Look at how the fish comes at just the right time. And he knows just who to swallow. God controls the fish. And look at how the storm leaves. It knows that it's over. And look how God controls the storm. But honestly, I mean, like, we should be able to expect that. We already believe God made all these things. That's just the most basic reality of our world. The, the universe is not confused about God. Creation obeys the Lord. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus calms the storm, and what do the disciples say? They say, what sort of man is this that even winds and seas obey him, right? Those are miraculous things, but that's not the whole story. The, the whole story is, yes, of course, nature obeys God. Nature is not confused about who God is. The whole story is that we do not obey God, that we want to be our own gods. All throughout the Bible, God is not confused about God. Nature is not confused about God. We are confused about God, right? We're the ones who question his authority and question his judgment and his wisdom and his timing. We're the ones who say, I know you want me to go this way, but I just booked a boat, boat ride this way. Last week, Josh preached through Psalm 51 and the repentance of David. And you think about that story. Uh, the universe at no point in that story was confused about who was on the throne, right? God was on the throne. David looks at Bathsheba and he says, I know this is wrong, but I don't want to submit to God. I want to do what I want to do. And he thinks about killing Uriah. And he knows it's wrong, but he wants to do what he wants to do. 
And all the while, (laughs) the birds of the city are just flying overhead. They're not confused about who God is. They don't think that they're God. They're having no problems with that at all. Creation knows who God is. It's us who are confused. We think we know best. We think we can navigate our life better. And when things go wrong, we think we can dig ourselves out better, right? That's a story last week for sure. But God is the authority. God is in control. And not only that, but God sees how all the pieces fit together. That's why it's so egregious when we reject the plans of God. Because it's so clear that we see nothing that God can see, right? You say, yeah, I know I'm on earth and God's like 50,000 feet. No. (laughs) God's so far beyond that. God sees the entire universe that he made. He sees trillions of planets and galaxies and stars. And God sees it all the way zoomed out, and he sees it all the way zoomed in. His eyes penetrate into the hearts of seven billion people while also seeing all of his creation. And then on top of all of that, God sees how all of these pieces fit together. And he sees the story throughout history. I think we have a tendency in life that when things go wrong, things start to pile up against us. We pity ourselves and we think, man, it's like the whole universe is against me. God is against me. Every car on this road is against me, right? And God is up in heaven. Sometimes I think God's up in heaven and he's like, my child, you have no idea how many times I've saved you from disaster, right? You have no idea. Sometimes you see on the news like a tragic story of, you know, a car goes out of control and it goes into a crosswalk and it strikes a family and breaks your heart and we read about it. But you never hear a story about a family that would have been in that same crosswalk, but they ended up one block behind because their kid dropped an ice cream cone. And and then he was crying and he's sitting on the curb and the mom's upset and she's like, we're late, we need to hurry up, we're five minutes late. And and they think it's a disaster that they're late. And in the background, you're sitting on the curb, kid drops his ice cream cone and (laughs) five minutes later, you hear sirens going off. You have no clue. I can't imagine how many days God has rescued my grumbling, whiny, ungrateful little heart from disaster, and I don't even know it, right? That's true for you. I simply don't know what's best for my life, and the amount of thanks that we owe to God is so far beyond our comprehension. Amen, Philister? Yeah. So how do you follow a God like this? I think we have to be content as God's people to not see all of life as this chessboard but that we simply just make the next, the next move. We don't have to know every possible outcome. We don't have to map out the next 10 moves. We just simply follow God in the next way that he's called us. You don't have to know everything to keep on the solid rock for one more day. This is what keeps coming to my mind as I read the book of Jonah. You don't have to have every answer. 
Do you know if there's a storm coming soon? I don't, but I'm going to build my house here on the solid foundation because that's the next right move, right? Do you know if you're going to have friends with you along the way? It seems like everybody's just kind of building their lives over here on these things, and they're doing it their way, and it's kind of working, and nothing's really gone wrong for them. But you say, no, I'm going to build my house here on the solid foundation because that's just the next right move. You don't have to know everything in order to do that, to build your life simply on God's wisdom and God's word, right? You can't control what comes next, but you can control what you're holding on to when the next thing comes, right? On social media things, I follow some of those like motivational life coach guru guys. They mostly just yell at you to go to the gym. And you're like, David, you don't look like you go to the gym enough. And I know, I need to follow more of them, okay? It's like, it's a process. But I like to kind of challenge some of their ideas and like kind of push back with the gospel on it and think through like, not like in the comment section, I'm not, not that guy. I'm just saying like in my head, right? Like I take what you say and I see if I, if I like it, you know? But one guy, I love what he says. He says, everyone talks about wanting to have self-confidence, but you don't gain self-confidence by screaming affirmations in the mirror. You gain self-confidence by having a stack of undeniable proof that you are who you say you are. And I always thought that was a cool phrase for like a, you know, at least maybe go to the gym. I don't know. I think I might go to the gym today. <clears throat> but just for being a, a dad, like I would try to start applying that. Like I don't need to stand in the mirror in the morning and say like, I'm a good dad. I'm a great dad. I'm a wonderful dad. I'm a beautiful dad, you know. <laughs> I just need to do the right thing today. And then tomorrow I can say, Yesterday was hard. I was tired. I had every chance to not be a good dad, but I did the things that a good dad does. I, I worked through it. I pushed through it. You start to begin this pile of, of evidence that I, I am who I say I am. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to be the man that I want to be. But ultimately, all of these motivational guys are probably trying to sell you something, first of all. But second of all... <laughs> Just trying to give you the best way to navigate this crazy world as imperfect, broken people. And for us as God's people, we have something so far beyond this. Because we could say, look, I want to build a stack of proof that I am who I say I am. But ultimately, who am I? As Christians, we have something so much better. We have a God who says, I am who I say I am. And I will always be who I say I am. And you can build your life on top of that. And you can start stacking wins on top of that. We have unshakable confidence in God delivering on his promises in the midst of whatever your life might look like. We don't have a God who needs to, to fake his own confidence like we so often do. I just imagine Jonah on the boat like a 2023 Jonah, and he's got like his AirPods in and he's listening to a motivational podcast and he's standing in front of the mirror running from God and he's saying to himself, I'm free, I'm an independent man, I'm happy, I'm safe, I'm loved, I'm brave. All those affirmations, they're not going to save you. Self-confidence is not going to save you. And actually, 10 minutes from now, you're going to be saying, I'm cold, I'm wet, 
I'm swallowed. When it comes to like the battle between your self-confidence and your affirmations and reality, like reality is going to always win. It's like perfect record. Imagine a little wooden shack on a beach. You build a wooden shack on the coast of Florida and you put up a sign that says, I'm strong, I'm brave. This shack is strong, this shack is brave. It doesn't just make the hurricanes pass over it, right? <laughs> like the hurricanes are not like about to hit this house and then they're like, oh, well, hold on. Did you read the sign? We're gonna have to just pass over this one. That's an easy knockdown, but we're gonna, we're not doing it, okay? Just like the angel of death and your little shack is built on sand as a little Israelite child and the, the hurricane just passes right over that thing. It's not enough, right? Ultimately, reality wins. And the prayer of Jonah reminds us that, he says, your idols are not going to save you. Clinging to your idols is not going to save you. Your self-confidence is not going to save you, but your God most certainly will save you. Amen? Yeah. And so Jonah ends verse 9 with such a profound statement. I think this is good news for us this morning. As a room full of people who are trying to figure out this crazy life on a crazy planet, Jonah gives us at least one simple truth that we can take with us. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Simple. In the midst of all these things, salvation belongs to the Lord. You believe that, Village Church? Yeah. So this morning, as we continue our prayer series, I just I want to give us a chance to pray about these things. And so, would you close your eyes with me? Would you bow your heads? Jonah cries out that salvation belongs to the Lord. This is something we can cry out day after day. It's not just a one time. We face things every day. And so, this morning, take a few minutes. I just want to give you time to, to cry out to God right now to declare that salvation belongs only to Him. For whatever you're facing in life today, whatever you're overwhelmed with, and maybe for many of you, whatever sin that you're battling, you feel that you're running from things today. You feel that you're overwhelmed by things today. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Would you bring it to Him? I'll give you some time to pray now.
God, we thank you that these things are true. Salvation belongs to you. That ultimately, our salvation is in your hands. And that day by day and moment by moment, our salvation is in you, not ourselves. We're grateful. We pray that you'd worship, we worship you now as you deserve. Amen.